from KQED. KQED Public Radio, I'm Michael Krasny. State health data suggests that the Bay Area is making progress against the coronavirus pandemic. New cases have declined by 60% over last month and region-wide. Hospitalizations are down as well, but as San Francisco Mayor London Breed said yesterday, we're not out of the woods yet. The city saw a recent uptick in hospitalizations, and Bay Area health officials are sounding notes of caution about a possible Labor Day bump. We'll get the latest on the Bay Area's battle against COVID. Plus, the city of Berkeley can now fine you $100 for not wearing a mask. We'll hear how the city's new ordinance aims squarely at college parties and anyone who isn't properly masking or distancing. That's all next, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. Evidence is emerging that the nine-county Bay Area is making significant strides against the coronavirus pandemic. New cases have fallen by more than 60 percent since mid-August, and hospitalizations are down by 35 percent from their peak. That's according to state health data compiled by the San Francisco Chronicle. We're going to talk about what contributed to the declines, how progress differs by county, and whether we can expect the positive trends to continue. And we'll have a couple of County Public Health Officers joining us uh, in the course of this segment. But first, Leslie McClurg joins us, and she's science reporter for KQED and is going to be with us the whole segment. Welcome, Leslie. Good morning. Good morning to you. These are encouraging numbers across the state. Uh, new cases, new death numbers falling. Uh, we don't want to get too confident about this, and there are concerns and caveats. But uh, on the whole, it's promising. It's encouraging. It is really encouraging. You know, if you just kind of look at the snapshot of what you just mentioned, we're basically back to before the summer surges. So that is that is really good news. It's kind of like before we did the lockdown, or we're right at the end of the lockdown, before the economy started to ramp back up, we're back to there. So we haven't gotten rid of the virus, but we have we are on the right, we are moving in the right direction. And this is giving health officials and scientists, doctors, you know, some optimism that what we're doing is working. Basically, our pandemic sort of, you know, actions of wearing our masks, washing our hands, socially distancing, you know, we're kind of in that routine and, it, and it's working. That's what they're hopeful. Now, what makes this different, for example, than, well, the last time when it seemed to be working and in fact, uh, we started opening things up and then a surge began soon after that? I think that is the, the question that's on everyone's mind. Hopefully, we're more into a routine. And, and when we signaled and we opened the economy last time, I think there might have been a sense that, okay, things can go back to normal and people got a little bit lax about their social distancing, etc. We learned that didn't work. And so businesses had to close again. So I think it's a good question as the economy begins to open slowly again. I think we're going to open it slower this time. Um, but as counties, you know, begin to you know, open some businesses at minimal capacity, et cetera, we'll see if this trend continues. I think that's why I say, you know, optimistic, but cautiously optimistic that we're moving in the right direction. We also don't know if this decline is due to some of just the recent events. So we had a heat wave in August. Did people stay inside and not socialize as much 
at that time because of the heat, you know, to just kind of like come inside and, and get out of the, the hot sun. We've had the wildfires recently. All of us have been inside a lot more, probably not socializing because of the bad air. So those are factors in the equation that we will see as our air, you know, luckily is, is improving yesterday and today. Will those numbers start going back up as people potentially begin to socialize outdoors again? So, you know, there's always a delay on these things. We don't really know uh, what's happening until about two weeks after an event happens. So, for example, when Memorial Day happened, you know, last spring, about two weeks later, after all those beach gatherings, we saw a spike. Will we see the same thing again, you know, a week from now, which will be two weeks out from Labor Day, to be determined? We have to, uh, in fact, wait for a while, although some numbers are coming in to Solano uh, through the dashboard, and we'll talk with the health officer there and get the picture. But also, hospitalizations have got kind of an uptick in San Francisco, too. What do we make of that, Leslie? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I mean, fortunately, across the nine Bay Area counties, San Francisco is a bit of an outlier there. So hospitalizations are going up in San Francisco, uh, but they're not in, in most counties, which is which is really good news. Um, I don't think there's a real good sense of why those hospitalizations are going up there, or at least I, I haven't heard of, of specific details. But, you know, overall, the trend is down. Overall, the trend is down across the state, although we are still seeing a lot of hospitalizations in Southern California. California, you know, specifically Los Angeles, San Diego, and Orange counties. So, you know, we're not in the clear, but by any stretch, but but these trends are moving in the right direction. And, and two trends that are, you know, really encouraging is that fewer tests are coming back positive. So the statewide, statewide positivity rate has decreased to about 3.5%. So 3.5% of tests, you know, are coming back positive, which is quite a bit lower than during our summer peaks. And, and also, there's a, there's a measure we can scientists can determine, you know, how many people an infected person goes on to infect. And that measurement, it's called the r naught, is also going down, um, which tends to signal that the coronavirus spread is, you know, moving in the right direction, not just because of these external factors of bad air, etc. We are potentially moving in the right direction for good. Hello. Let's talk about the r not for a moment, because that means uh, the number of people each get infected, uh, uh, actually, uh, sp each infected person spreads a virus to, that's that's the label of measurement. Uh, it's been not only stable, but it's been decreasing in all nine barrier counties. In fact, it's below one everywhere except San Mateo, I think, which is right at one. Exactly, exactly, which which definitely, definitely signals that the virus, the spread of the virus is slowing, which is a really good and, and more solid indicator that we're moving in the right direction. And that's why health officials potentially think that we're just getting better at being in a pandemic and our actions, our personal actions across the board are slowing this virus down. You know, like I said, just those those personal actions of wearing our masks, socially distancing, and washing our hands are just more of a habit now, is, is what they're attributing that trend to. Talking with uh, KQED science reporter Leslie McClurg, and uh, there was a spike in Santa Clara after some reopening there. It went from purple uh, actually to red, and then uh, now we've got a concern again, don't we? Yeah, I mean, I think that's what it shows when, when you open things back up that typically things start going back up 
um, you know, the, the trends of the, the, the case numbers start going back up when you open the economy. And so I think that's the question. Most of these Bay Area counties, like Marin just got the green light uh, to open up some businesses because the numbers were looking good there. So will we see again that trend, you know, there if we open things up to cases start going back up? So uh, like I said, I think this is, or like I said, like the governor keeps saying, this is sort of a dimmer. You know, we open things and we see how it goes and then we might have to lock things down. And that's just, I think, the reality that all of us are beginning to swallow that this is, you know, the more in, the more we interact, the more the virus is going to spread. And so whether or not we can continue to open things up and continue uh, to see the numbers going in the right direction is, is what all health officials are hoping for, is that we'll, we're just better at being in the pandemic. That's a big question. And as the weather gets cooler, more people, of course, are going to be going inside and probably more gatherings uh, one way or another. Uh, we're going to bring in a health officer into this discussion. We're going to talk uh, in the course of the segment with Dr. Matt Willis, who's Marin County Public Health Officer. But first, we want to talk to Dr. Bela Matias, who's Solano County Public Health Officer. And Dr. Matias, welcome to the program. Good to have you. Thank you very much, Michael. I guess the place I'd like to begin with you is uh, the question about this two-week wait on Labor Day bump and, and Labor Day uh, summer surge totals uh, uh, were clear after Memorial Day and after the 4th of July. And uh, the, the indication seems to be a little bit discouraging in Solano uh, in terms of numbers. Uh, and that goes to Labor Day, doesn't it? Um, you know, we're a smaller county, so it doesn't take much of an increase in actual numbers to, to show, uh, you know, what looks to be a spike. Uh, we've had a small increase in numbers that we do believe is related to Labor Day. We've also had a couple of outbreaks occur here recently in congregate facilities with enough individuals impacted by it that it clearly shows up in our numbers as well. Yet I, I think the two-week delay after an event has to do with the fact that it takes a while for people to actually become sick and then to recognize that they're ill and go get tested and then for the test results to get to us. So um, I think we're still uh, in the middle of learning about the impact of Labor Day. Um, and, and so I don't see it as discouraging. I see it as expected. You know, I, I just I want to make a couple of points in relation to the conversation. One is that I don't really believe our actions as public health officials are anywhere near as important as we think they are. I think the community's behavior is what's been driving this outbreak. And related to that, here in our county, we've been able to identify that the disease trends track very, very closely with personal social behavior. In other words, People gathering with family and friends when they let their guard down and aren't using their masks, aren't doing social distancing, is responsible for well over 95% of the disease that we've been tracking for the past three months. And it's not correlated at all with the opening or closing of business sectors. Um, and that kind of makes sense because there's only a couple of business sectors that encourage people to actually gather. You know, you can argue that restaurants and bars are a place where if they're open, people are more apt to have that type of interaction. Most of the business sectors only cause incidental exposures, not sustained, not likely to cause any transmission. And, and the observation that people are wearing masks more is made in the public sector, in the business sectors. It's not true when people get together with family and friends. And we, if we look at our curve, it started on Mother's Day and it clearly ended after July 4th. Our decrease very sharply began after the July 4th holiday. And I think there's a number of reasons for that. I think that when we were doing the stay at home and we were very uh, rigorous about it, people did not socialize very much and they had a, a pent up need for socialization. And, and I think they've gotten a lot of that out of their system. I think that 
Um, the need to get together with family and friends replaced what would have been a travel season when people had been scattering all over with traveling but weren't able to. Um, I think we, we've always observed a seasonal reduction in socializing behavior when school resumes. And even though it's online and not face-to-face, it is nonetheless, I think, probably ingrained as, in us to some extent that come fall, we don't socialize as much. Um, and maybe some of it, it would be nice to believe that some of it is that people are actually heeding our social, our, our uh, harm reduction messaging and doing more social distancing when they are getting together with family and friends. Um, and I do agree that the smoke and the heat in our county contributed substantially to reduced outdoor gathering behaviors, although it's hard to know whether it affected indoor gathering behaviors. But the numbers clearly track with people's personal behaviors and not with any of the, uh, the closures or openings that we've been placing on the economy. And but again, you know, I limit that to Solano County. I can't speak for other counties. Yeah, no. And uh, it's, it's uh, of course, important to hear what your experience is there. We're coming up on a quick break here, but I also wanted to mention the fact that uh, the, the youth numbers are somewhat disturbing in Solano County. Uh, I mean, alarming, certainly 65 and older, but that's standard uh, because of the risk factors. But and you also got a, a really strongly high disproportionate number of Latinos who have turned up with COVID cases. Yeah, uh, the impact on non-white communities is very is very substantial. Hispanic, Latinx, African American, Black, uh, Asian Pacific Islander are all experiencing much higher rates of hospitalization and death than the white population, and that does attribute to the health inequities that exist in our communities. Uh, the impact or the numbers of children, though, I'm not concerned about because almost all of those children are being identified because they're contacts of family members who are positive, and they themselves are asymptomatic. I think it's a misnomer to believe that it doesn't spread among children. It clearly does. Well, we will continue this discussion. And again, uh, we're with Leslie McClurg, science reporter for KQED, and Dr. Bela Matias, who is Solano County Public Health Officer. When we return, Dr. Matt Willis, Marin County Public Health Officer, will be joining us. And of course, you can join us. If you have questions or comments, the number to call is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. I'm Michael Krasny. Welcome back to the forum program. I'm Michael Krasny. What questions do you have about how the Bay Area is managing the pandemic? You can give us a call right now. We invite you to do that. Our toll-free number is available to you. It's 866-733-6786. A number again for your calls, 866-733-6786, or get in touch on Twitter or Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email any questions you may have to forum at kqed.org. I want to bring Dr. Matt Willis into this discussion. He's Marin County Public Health Officer and welcome back to the program. Good to have you. Thanks. It's good to be here. I guess uh, Marin County had uh, really some problems in high per capita cases and deaths in the region. A lot of that had to do with San Quentin and I know that we're doing a lot better on that score. There were 2,000 cases and 26 deaths, but you've moved now, and congratulations on that. I know it must be a relief in many ways, move from purple uh, to red or to the second tier uh, from the first tier where there are 33 counties uh, in, the, in, the, in uh, the state of California. They're mostly in that purple tier. Um, let's talk about the cautious optimism, as Leslie McClure called it before, because uh, this is an important juncture for you. You're opening up a lot of things in Marin now. That's right. Yeah, we've been seeing steady progress since mid-July. You know, July was a really rough month for us across the region and particularly in, in, in Marin. Um, we now have about one third of the cases that we were having on a weekly basis um, compared to, to July. Um, at, our, at our worst week, which was mid-July, we had almost 500 cases. Um, last week, we had about 100 cases. 
Um, so we have seen significant progress and it's been steady. It's been you know, slow and gradual declines since that peak in mid-July. Um, we separated the, the San Quentin numbers out. You know, we looked at obviously San Quentin was a huge contributor to case rates in Marin County. You know, we had in, in three weeks in San Quentin, we had the same number of cases we'd had up to that point across the county as a whole since the beginning of the pandemic. Um, but even, you know, even when we separated out the San Quentin numbers, we were at the same time seeing rapid increases in cases across our community, um, particularly in the Latinx community, focused in one, one region particularly, which was the canal area of San Rafael. Um, we've seen progress in all those areas. The last case in San Quentin was three weeks ago, um, and we're seeing uh, reduced positivity across our across our community at the peak it was 14 percent positive cases now we're at four percent um, through the month of july we had more than 20 individuals in the hospitals in marin county um, since early august we've had fewer than 20 and today there are 10 people in the, in the hospital in marin so we have seen progress and i think you know i agree with um with bella and and leslie that um it's largely attributable to um, focusing on the fundamentals. I, I can't point to any one policy change or one change in strategy that I could really credit for this. You know, we'd love to take credit for this, but I think it's actually really um, the collective sum of all the behaviors that our community has been engaging in um, as we learned um, the fundamentals in terms of how to pre prevent transmission, covering our face, practicing physical distancing, um, avoiding gatherings, you know, these are the things that have led to our success so far um, and will be the things that we need to lean into even more heavily as we begin to, re to reopen. Well, the beginning of reopening in Marin includes a good deal. I mean, gyms and nail salons, and uh, there's certainly even talk about opening the schools in uh, the end of September. All of this in light of the fact that some of the reopenings have caused resurges. I mean, there's a kind of delicacy here uh, in navigating, isn't there, and a kind of tenuousness? Absolutely. I mean, I think, um, you know, if I have any concerns about moving from purple into red, um, you know, it's hard to it's hard to talk about progress um, when the overall message needs to be one of vigilance and caution. Um, we do not want to see this as a as a sign that we can relax, that the coast is clear, but rather our work so far has achieved a level of, of, of success that allows us to consider um, in our in our continuous sort of risk continuum and balancing harms and benefits and economic realities as well as infectious disease, um, that we can take those next steps, um, but we need to do it cautiously. Um, I think we've learned that we know how we know what it takes. You know, when I look back at mid mid July, compared to now, there have not been a lot of changes in our policies in Marin County since that point. We we have taken a cautious approach all along. When we were placed on the state watch list, that monitoring list, which was designed by the state to really pro provide strict guardrails for, for, for counties that were seeing increased incidents, it didn't actually change our policies very much because we were already there. We were already at that level of cautiousness. Um, and so I think what we, the fact that we've had you know, now eight weeks almost of continuous progress in the absence of major changes in policy, I think tells us that we know what it takes. And it's that... I'm confident, you know, if we weren't confident in that, I don't think we would be choosing to, to, to reopen. But again, I think the, the next lesson will be, of course, what, what does it mean in terms of case rates? You know, we'll be watching very carefully 
in each sector that's reopening, what the impact might be proportionally on, on transmission. We have our contact tracers that reach out to every single case. That interview includes where that person may have been exposed. And if we're learning that people who are exposed in restaurants are, are, are being infected, we learn that, that um, nail salons and other settings are in fact contributing to transmission, we will use a local evidence-based approach to change our policies. Could you uh, explain just a little bit uh, how you got those numbers down at San Quentin? I understand there was some work in conjunction with Cook County. That's right. Well, we're now working on a, a conversation later today, actually, with CDC and Cook County. You know, this is a unique environment that, you know, outbreaks in prisons are extraordinarily challenging to manage, um, especially in a prison like San Quentin that is, you know, um, centuries. You know, it's a, it's a very old facility. And not a lot has changed in the, in the way it's organized um, architecturally. Um, you know, hundreds of men gathered in very close quarters. Um, up to 800 in, you know, cells that are four by eight in doubles, um, sharing the same ventilation system, sharing the same room. It's, you know, the, the stage is set for rapid spread as soon as the virus is introduced in that setting. That's a challenge that's shared in prisons across the country. Um, and from an infectious disease standpoint, um, it's, it's really built into that setting, into, into, into those conditions that we're seeing outbreaks like we saw in San Quentin across the nation. So we're, we're borrowing from what's being learned in other other communities. Cook County had a large outbreak and, and had, had some success there. Importantly, I'm, I'm working as an advisor in this setting and, and offering recommendations. We don't have jurisdiction over that, over that prison, and that has been um, a source of, of concern and frustration at times as we observe the way that outbreak was managed. But that, that relationship is getting better, and we have now, I think, a greater role in helping them um, prevent the next outbreak. Um, and so we're engaging um, CDC and, and others that like Cook County that have had have this burden before. Matt Willis, good to have you with us. I appreciate you joining us on Forum this morning. Thank you. Thank you. That's Dr. Matt Willis, Marin County Public Health Officer. And I want to go back to Leslie McClurg, who's science reporter for KQED. And then we want to get to your calls and emails. And again, you can join us toll free at 866-733-6786. Or you can get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email us, forum at kqed.org. I want to pick up on what Dr. Willis said, Leslie, about the Canal District in Marin. There are certainly disproportionate numbers, and, and these are really troubling uh, among people of color. Uh, there's a high positive rate of Latinos in East Oakland, for example. The numbers there are significantly higher. And uh, what do we know at this point uh, about those populations and uh, what we're doing about the, to ameliorate the problems? Yeah, I mean, it's it's really tragic. Across the state, you know, Latinos are now 3.4 times more likely than whites to test positive, which is just, which is just you know, it's, it's tragic. And, you know, I think there's a number of reasons or, or we think there's a number of reasons of why that is happening. You know, it could be social determinants of health. These are potentially populations who are lower income. They may not have health insurance, which means that their overall health might not be as good. They might be struggling with comorbidities like diabetes or obesity, which makes them, you know, more vulnerable to the virus. Um, these are also, you know, populations that are potentially in essential positions. So they're still on the front lines at grocery stores or construction sites. And so they're just out in the world, potentially having a lot more interaction with other people. They might live in, in you know, multi-generational homes where if one person gets infected, 
many other people in that household uh, get infected because just more people are living in these in these areas. You know, some experts even say, you know, they might be living closer to freeways where air pollution is higher, so they have respiratory issues, which also make them more vulnerable. Um, you know, language barriers, are they getting the same public health messages? Um, you know, hopefully, I think public health officials are trying to make sure that these populations are, are just as educated, but that could also be a barrier. So there's a number of reasons that potentially why these communities are getting hit harder. Um, it's a trend that we have seen in, in other epidemics. And, you know, historically, uh, these groups tend to get hit harder. We saw it during the AIDS epidemic. We saw it during H1N1. So it, it's not particularly surprising, um, but it is unfortunately r really tragic. And, and you'd have to ask your public health officials, you know, what it, how exactly they're, they're dealing with that problem. But I, I know uh, there are significant efforts to track the data and to get the messages uh, to these communities. Could you address that, Dr. Matthews, uh, Dr. Bella Matthews? How are you dealing with that problem? Uh, well, you know, it, there, there are cultural norms that need to be taken into account when dealing with, with different groups of individuals. And, and I think it's too simplistic to suggest that all um, Latinx Hispanic folks have, share the same culture. So we've been trying to identify uh, community leaders and, and use Promotora to try to encourage uh, a more trusting relationship uh, with us with respect to the different communities, the farm worker community being very different than those who work in manufacturing or those who work in other essential industries. The vast majority of our, of our Latinx Hispanic are, are our own county's residents, they're not migrant. Um, and so we, we need to establish better access to healthcare overall for them. So we're doing a variety of methods, but the basic principle is to try to identify trusted intermediaries to help them better appreciate um, what, what, it, what the information is that we're trying to impart and hopefully engender more trust. Bela Matthews again is Solano County Public Health Officer, and Steve is our first caller up here. Steve, welcome. You're on the air. Yeah, hi. Um, July 2nd, I experienced some COVID symptoms, so I, I'm lucky to have insurance, so I contacted my doctors. It took 17 days before I was able to get test results. Um, in the meantime, I did was able to drive to um, San Rafael and get a 15-minute result. Um, if someone you know, doesn't have insurance or... What does it, can you with a straight face recommend they get a test if they're not going to get a result for that long? What's the progress with, with testing? And can't public health departments uh, do some testing themselves? Why not step up? Number of questions you've raised here, Steve. Let me go back to Dr. Matthews. Those are excellent questions. Uh, they, at that point in time, you were experiencing the longest delays that we have seen with regard to getting test results back. At one point, we were running an average of three weeks delay, which is what you're describing. That's now gone, gone down to two to three days, even in the worst case scenario. All of the capacity, um, the capacity that had been saturated has definitely is no longer saturated. We're definitely getting much faster turnaround from all testing sites. And a lot of that has to do with the reduction in numbers. With far fewer cases, we have far fewer contacts that we're recommending go get tested. So at this point, I, I believe that you can go to uh, to the LHI sites, to the Verily sites, and get results back within two to three days. Public health has also, since um, that time period, stepped up tremendously in its capacity to test. We are now better able to support that as well. And hospitals have much more in the way of in-house rapid testing as well as access to rapid commercial testing. So the, the world of testing has definitely improved. I'm not going to suggest it's where everybody wants it to be, but it has definitely improved. And let me go back to you on, with a, well, I want to go back to one of our emailers here with a question uh, for you, Dr. Matt, is uh, 
This is William who says, while there are asymptomatic individuals that can pass the virus on to others, isn't society restricted to the same social distancing guidelines? Granted, rapid test results could be used to confirm COVID-free populations. However, aren't we all stuck in our current situation until a successful vaccine is available? I think that one of the most powerful lessons we've learned in the past seven months is that if we implement social distancing appropriately, we blunt the transmission of COVID. We also simultaneously blunt the transmission of all respiratory diseases. So I hope that that is a lesson we actually take to heart and that whenever we are experiencing cold and flu season, that we are doing better with social distancing than we have in the past. And, and in that regard, that is a very, very powerful mitigating tool. Yes, vaccine is going to be a game changer, but it's going to be a game changer more psychologically than physically, because if you actually don't transmit the disease, then you don't acquire it. Um, and you don't need a vaccine to accomplish that. The vaccine um, is sort of your fallback plan if the transmission does occur. So I think frontline um, protection will always be social distancing as a mitigation measure for transmission, and that the vaccine, when it comes along, is going to be that backstop in much the same way that we do with influenza. And again, Dr. Baylor, Matt is, is Solano County Public Health Officer, and our next caller is Jacques. Jacques, welcome. You're on the air. Hi, thank you. I'm a pediatrician and leader with the Academy of Pediatrics here in California, and uh, this is specifically for our, our Marin colleague. We uh, have trouble understanding why, in the context of, of the epidemic, since the very beginning, we've seen that indoor dining and other unmasked indoor activities is a major risk factor for outbreaks. And with the uh, lower transmission risk and uh, less likelihood of, of being very sick for young children, particularly elementary school age, we're wondering why some counties have chosen to open higher risk indoor activities before um, prioritizing young children who are particularly adversely affected by uh, distance learning. Yeah, let me thank you for the question, Jack. Let me go back to you, Leslie, if I can. Leslie McClurg, uh, what, what's the thinking on that as you understand it? I mean, the state makes the, the guidelines for what should open and when the, when things should open. And I think it's always threading the needle between the economic impacts and, and making sure that these restaurants survive and keeping our economy, economy buzzing along and, you know, the risks of, of spreading the virus. And so as things begin to open, you know, I think right now Marin moves from the purple tier to the red tier and some indoor restaurants, you know, at very lower, much lower capacity begin to open. But in two weeks, then uh, they have the choice at the end of September to open their schools as well at some, again, you know, with a lot of restrictions in place to make sure they're try to make sure that's as safe as possible. So I think it's really threading threading the needle there um, as we've done along this this whole way. Obviously, if we wanted to stop the virus completely, we would do the, the entire lockdown like we did back in March, April, and May. And we know that that works. <laughs> and we know that there you know, are deep repercussions uh, that unfold, like, like the doctor was saying about, you know, distance learning and, and how that really impacts, um, you know, all kinds of aspects of, of a child's experience of the world emotionally psychologically and they're, they're intellectual so there's costs when we try to stop the virus um and we have to balance those and you know people in official positions are making those decisions uh, fortunately i'm not making those decisions well uh dr matt yes you're making some of these decisions how do you balance the risks that are associated with schools uh 
Well, I think the first thing we have to do is ask ourselves what level of risk we're willing to accept. I, I believe that it is unrealistic to create a, a world in which we have zero risk of transmission. But if we're willing to accept negligible risk of transmission, I believe that we know enough about the social distancing measures and how they can be employed uh, to be able to operate schools far more safely than would have been the case before. Um, are we going to have cases occur in schools in spite of that? Absolutely, because people will still be exposed outside of school and bring it in. The key is to not have the school itself be an incubator and a spreader of disease. And I do believe that there are measures we can take that reduce it. It'll be harder with the younger grades, much more easily done with the older grades. But again, recognizing the physician's comment about the health impacts, the people most impacted are not children, it's, it's people who are older. And, and most of the effort on mitigation has to be on staff and faculty. If we accomplish that combination effectively, I think we can reopen schools with a negligible uh, level of risk of transmission, but it won't be perfect. Dr. Matthews, thank you so much for joining us. That's Dr. Bela Matthews, who is Solano uh, County Public Health Officer. Good to have you with us. And Leslie McClure, good to have you with us. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you. Leslie McClure, a science reporter for KQED. I'm heartened to hear Leslie talk about cautious optimism because she's proved pretty prescient in the past. Uh, and we're going to continue talking about COVID, but in a whole different direction. There's a city council ordinance now in Berkeley. You're going to be fined if you don't wear a mask. Of course, it's an ordinance in other counties as well, but we'll find out what Berkeley's trying to do. That's next. Stay tuned. I'm Michael Krasny.